This is an ABC podcast. Hey there, Ange McCormack with you for the Hack Podcast, filling in for Dave Marchese today. You know how politicians always talk about creating jobs? Well, former PM Scott Morrison apparently took that very literally and he secretly gave himself three very important jobs during the pandemic. In a moment, we'll find out why Scott Morrison has been compared to Kanye West today and what the current PM Anthony Albanese is going to do about it. Plus, rates of volunteering in Australia are going down. Some people are blaming TikTok for that, of course, but we'll look into the real reason in a little bit in this episode. First, though, today we're marking an important anniversary. You're listening to Hack. On Triple J. Yeah, this time a year ago, we were bringing you coverage from Afghanistan. The Taliban, who are an extremist, Islamist, militant group, took over the capital, Kabul, threw the country into turmoil. Videos went viral of families running along the tarmac, literally trying to jump onto planes so they could flee to safety. And the rest of the world looked on, very worried about what life in Afghanistan would, would look like under Taliban rule. In a bit, we'll talk about why the process to get more Afghan refugees to Australia has been so slow. But first, what's been going on in Afghanistan in the past 12 months? Bridget Murphy's here to explain. The Taliban have seized control of Afghanistan. The Afghan capital, Kabul. Few analysts. Some reports say they've begun. Taliban fighters celebrating victory over the force that swept them. Taliban fighters have flooded the capital. It's hard to believe it's already been a full year since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan. The war in the country and in neighbouring Iraq lasted for 20 years, with Aussie soldiers a part of the effort led by America to fight back against the Taliban and Al Qaeda. It all went down after the Twin Tower attacks in New York City in 2001, with then-President George W. Bush vowing Al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden would pay. They killed bin Laden in 2011, but remained in Afghanistan for another 10 years, trying to train up the Afghan army to defend themselves against regimes like the Taliban. But last year, US President Joe Biden made the call to end what he called the forever war so that no other Americans would die in the conflict. I refuse to send another generation of America's sons and daughters to fight a war that should have ended long ago. So America left. Australia left, and Afghanistan quickly fell to Taliban control. But amongst the chaos, the Taliban promised peace to the Afghan people. Equality, fairness, rights for women. There will be nothing against women in our ruling. Our people accept our women or Muslims. They accept Islamic rules. If they continue to live according to Sharia, we will be happy. They will be happy. So has that happened? According to Afghans, humanitarians, researchers and journalists, it's a solid no. Under Taliban rule, secondary education has already been completely banned for girls in the country. And that's something that Afghan teacher Sodaba wasn't ready to accept. So she opened an illegal, secret school in her home. When schools were open, girls were hopeful for a better future. But now everything is ruined. They're depressed and unmotivated. And the Taliban is the reason behind all of this. Two of her young students say that going to school is terrifying, but not going to school is way worse. I feel depressed and hopeless. Not just me, but everyone. Every Afghan girl needs education. It's the only way to develop our country. It's so scary getting here. I'm always scared going home too. 
On the other side of the world, today's anniversary is really tough for Afghans and refugees now calling Australia home. I'm Shabnam Safa and I'm the chairperson at the National Refugee-Led Advisory and Advocacy Group and also a member of the Action for Afghanistan campaign team. Shabnam lives in Nam, Melbourne, but she's originally from Afghanistan. This morning I woke up and I actually had difficulty breathing. I, I was transported straight back to um, the 16th of August last year, uh, the day we woke up to the news that Kabul had um, fallen as Taliban violently took over. I, I feel like I, I carry the, the weight and of the experiences of everyone that has come before me, but also the weight of the indifference from the rest of the world. Shabnam and her family fled Afghanistan when she was a toddler. They went to Pakistan, and after years of uncertainty, they were finally allowed to settle in Australia. She's one of many Afghan Australians taking part in anniversary vigils this evening across Australia. In Adelaide, Perth, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Canberra. Shabnam wants to see the Australian government do way more to help those affected. As a child of Afghanistan, you know, I have seen my parents go through the exact same thing that Afghanistan's going through now, or that the younger generation in Afghanistan are going through now. Since the fall of Kabul to the Taliban last year, around 200,000 humanitarian visa applications have been received. Just under half are yet to be considered. Refugee advocates like Shabnam want an extra 20,000 spots added. But Immigration Minister Andrew Giles says the government is focused on the initial proposed intake. We have put on additional staff to deal with the backlog and also additional staff to deal with issues that relate to family reunion um, affecting people from Afghanistan as well. The backlog is being progressed quite quickly and, and the only answer I can give you is as soon as possible. For thousands of refugees and Afghan Australians like Shabnam, today is despair, heartache and sadness. She hopes that Australia can make more of a difference as soon as possible. I hope that those at least 20,000 additional humanitarian visas are granted and I hope that people who have, who have found their way to Australia are um, settling and um, finding their new life um, with the support that they deserve. Hack on Triple J. Bridget Murphy with that story. Let's talk more about this with Mariam Bezadeh. She's a lawyer, human rights advocate and member of the Afghan Australian Advocacy Network. She's also the CEO of Media Diversity Australia. Mariam, thanks so much for speaking with me today. It's a pleasure. Mariam, um, take me back to this day last year. I know it wasn't a happy day. What was it like for you to look on as an Afghan-Australian at those videos of the fall of Kabul? It, it's actually, it was quite shocking um, seeing all of that play out on our television screens um, and the speed in which the Taliban, um, you know, over the course of the next few days were able to take control um, and take over Kabul was just mind-blowing. Um, I think you know, so much so much progress and advancement had happened in the sort of the two decades before that I don't think many people thought that this could happen so quickly. Um, in saying that when the US had announced its withdrawal, there was always concerns that something like that could happen. But I think the speed in which the Taliban were able to take control um, was really just took everyone by surprise. And 
at the time, there was a lot of uncertainty, um, you know, as you're saying for you in a personal sense mm. of what, what to do, but also from um, looking in on this situation from Australia, no one knew what the future was going to hold, what the next 12 months was going to look like. And we didn't know what the Taliban would do and what life would look like in Afghanistan. In your mm. view, has, has the past year been, I suppose, better or worse than what you feared on this day last year? Oh, I don't know if I could classify it as better, nor could I, you know, and it's hard to quantify whether it's worse. Like, I, I think at the end of the day, it's certainly not better. Um, at, at the time, there was all sorts of verbal assurances being provided by, you know, former representatives of the Taliban. And I remember the media putting questions to me saying, you know, the Taliban have said that they're, they're you know, they're taking a different approach. And I didn't buy it. I didn't buy it then. And we obviously now know 12 months in that none of what they said was did, did happen. This idea that they were going to take more of a progressive approach when it came to women's rights, none of that has happened. Um, we, we know that women um, can't, go to, can't get a secondary education. They can't work. We know there was a protest um, just yesterday um, or the day before, I believe, where women were out on the streets of Kabul protesting and were then, I believe, being shot at and, and, and journalists were being attacked. Um, 12 months in um, and, and all of the other things that a war-stricken country would go through in terms of poverty, um, you know, the effects of climate change, the fact that we've got the pandemic, um, the fact that there is food insecurity, the fact that the economic situation is so dire, it means that, people who haven't been able to fled the country um, are facing really dire circumstances and you're either dying from you know starvation and famine and hunger or putting your lives at risk at the possibility of, of, of being killed by the Taliban. Um, in the case of my family, I actually an elderly man was abducted several months ago because of um, his connections to the former government and his family, so my extended family, have been looking for him and a week and a half ago they discovered his body and oh which confirmed our fears that he was murdered. Um, and, and, and this is the risk that people face. It I, I guess this, Mariam, goes to... Yeah, sorry to yeah. Inter interrupt there, but this goes to the, the real-life consequences um, that, that Afghans are facing while waiting to, to flee the country, Absolutely. right? And, and I do want to talk Absolutely. about Australia's response mm. to this. Australia is accepting mm. some Afghan refugees, but there's nowhere near enough places available compared to the number mm. of applications. Um, what, what's the process been, been like from your uh, view? I know you've been, as you say, helping people try to come to Australia mm. and face this bureaucracy? So the family member who had their father abducted and killed had submitted an application and have not received a registration number to confirm that they've, you know, like it had, they've not received a confirmation number. Over 57% of applications have, but that's a huge chunk that haven't. And we're talking 12 months in since the Taliban fell. The process has been notoriously slow. We've had, you know, several conversations with the minister and other people and other staffers about the, the, the lack, you know, the, the, the fact that there's this huge backlog and they still haven't gone, been able to get through that. We can't quite understand why there's such significant delays in the processing. We know that over 200,000 applications and been submitted and only about 6,000 have been approved. If you think about the obligation that we have, and, and, and now there's intelligence to indicate that well before the Taliban took over, that there was intelligence to indicate that something like this could have happened. So we could have done more sooner. We didn't. There was a number of failures on a number of fronts. 
um, with the former government trying to manage the process of evacuations. Obviously, we're so grateful that people did get out, but there is still so much to be done and the progress is notoriously slow. And we've called for the humanitarian intake to, to be up to 20,000 and to actually get on with expediting the people that really do need to get out, the, you know, prioritising those that are immediate risk. And you're right, people are effectively dying, waiting for applications to be processed, either the, of themselves or of their family members. And the only reason we know about the case of my family is because I happen to be privileged enough to be able to be, be connected to, to be able to tell this story. But there are so many stories of nameless and faceless individuals that we'll never hear about that are effectively dying at the hands of the Taliban or as consequences of what's happened in Afghanistan over the course of the last year. Just finally, Mariam, you know, it's been a tough year, but there's something to be said, I think, about the spirit and resilience of the Afghan people, isn't there? I mean, what Mm. stories or moments of hope have you had in the past year seeing, you know, people in your community react to the crisis potentially? What are some moments there that stand out? Well, I think not just from our community, but the broader Australian community, there's been a lot of generosity, a lot of opening of doors and opening of hearts um, to really embrace the people of Afghanistan, particularly those that did flee over the course of the last year. Um, And that's been really heartwarming. We're just hoping, uh, you know, that that translates into faster action, obviously, from our government. But also seeing some of the the um, arrivals from Afghanistan in the case of one woman I met, Marwa Moeen, who has done some media, you know, she fled um, on mercy flights out of Afghanistan with 15 other young women with her. And today, um, she's now in a position where I've helped her secure a scholarship. We haven't quite announced it yet, but a scholarship to go and study journalism. And she's, she's making a life for herself. You know, she is taking what are, you know, terrible circumstances and, and people are helping her hopefully have a, a better life um, and, and getting back to Australia um, as she graduates from that. That's a really a really nice story to end on. Mariam, thanks so much for speaking with me today on Triple J. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Hack on Triple J. That was Mariam Bezada. She's a lawyer, human rights advocate and member of the Afghan Australian Advocacy Network. On the Triple J text line, someone says, the Taliban claiming that Afghans will have equal rights is less believable than pigs flying. Hack. Scott Morrison was not only being Prime Minister, but was Minister for Health, Industry, Finance at the same time as Resources. I mean, it reminds me of someone that's an absolute control freak. So maybe he just thought it was the Australian version of Kanye. On Triple Jack. Last week we were talking about side hustling, how lots of you are taking up multiple jobs to get by. Turns out the former PM Scott Morrison could have related to that story. There's been some very wild revelations today that Scott Morrison secretly made himself the Joint Minister for Health, Finance and Resources, even though there were already people in those jobs. Anthony Albanese says it's extraordinary and that his department will be investigating all of this. Have you seen this story? I want to know your thoughts about Scott Morrison secretly giving himself extra powers during the pandemic. Text me 0439 757555. There's a lot to get in here. Georgia Hitch, Hack's new political reporter in Canberra, is here to help us do that. Georgia, firstly, how 
how did Scott Morrison give himself these extra powers? How did that work? Yeah, well, Ange, this first happened at the beginning of the pandemic. So you kind of cast your mind back to March 2020. And at that time, it was just the health and finance portfolios. And it was really in case Greg Hunt, who was the health minister at the time, or Matthias Corman, who was the finance minister, it was if they got COVID and they were out of action. So it was a backup right. plan at the time. And you have to think this is when we didn't have vaccines. We didn't know much about it. It was a really kind of backup, backup. If everything goes wrong, the prime minister can step in. But then in the first half of last year, he also appointed himself the powers of the resources minister too. So how do you actually get these extra powers? You actually have to ask the governor general to give you them basically. And right. the governor general takes the advice of the prime minister of the day and the government of the day um, and acts on that. And the governor general has said today that it's actually not unusual for ministers to do things other than their roles, which is true. Um, but usually those things are done publicly and it's when a minister gets sick and somebody else fills in their role. So it's kind of rogue for a prime minister to do it because usually they're busy enough running the country. Yeah. And I mean, I, I suppose what you're saying there is that it, it is, tech, you know, it's it's legal, it's allowed to happen per the Governor General sort of signed off on it and that sort of thing. But the reaction today has been, you know, why the secrecy? Why did it not happen publicly? Why are we finding out now all these years later? That's exactly right. And I think that's one of the things that particularly uh, the Labor Party and the government have kind of seized on is this element of secrecy to it because ministers change quite a bit. You know, prime ministers and governments can reshuffle who they have in that really tight inner circle. They're kind of closest advisors, but it's usually done publicly and they're sworn in at a ceremony and everybody goes to the governor general's house and everybody knows what's going on. So to do it in secret, um, it does, that's one of the questions that really has been raised at the moment and alongside that is it was done in secret but it was also that, that appointment of the resources minister role has raised a few eyebrows because it kind of doesn't connect to the pandemic in any way. Yeah can you talk more about that like why as you said before the health and finance minister um, allocation kind of made sense in the COVID um, context but what does resources minister have to mm. do with it? So this is an interesting one because it seems to be linked to a decision to dump a pretty controversial plan to drill for gas not far off the New South Wales coast and I'd kind of missed this last year but it was a project called PEP 11 and there was just huge community backlash to it all up and down the coast pretty much from Wollongong in the south to Newcastle in the north because of how close it was going to be to the shoreline and to you know places like Sydney big populated areas and so the catch is the actual resources minister so the person that we all assumed was the resources mm -hmm. minister at the time Keith Pitt he wanted the project to go ahead he's from the nationals they're pro-gas but Scott Morrison intervened, he used these fancy new powers that he had given himself and he ended that project. And at the time, this was at the end of last year, he said it was because he'd listened to the community and he'd also listened to the Liberal candidates in those areas that were going to be affected. And that's a really key part because Liberal MPs, so members of parliament, and candidates in those areas, they were already worried at that time that if PEP 11, so if this project went ahead and they drilled for gas off the coast, that some of the people in those communities who might have voted Liberal beforehand but who were pro-action on climate change would vote against the Liberal Party at the May election. Now, right. of course, we know now that even stepping in and ditching that project, it wasn't enough to stop a lot of voters from either switching their vote to Labor or switching their vote to a Teal Independent. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack, filling in for Dave Marchese today. I'm with uh, Hack political reporter Georgia Hitch. We're talking about this really interesting story out of Canberra today about Scott Morrison 
giving himself a few extra jobs during the pandemic, um, being a kind of co-minister in a few portfolios. Uh, James on Bundjalung Country says, perhaps Scott Morrison would make a great envoy to Hawaii. That's a... um, (laughs) See what you're saying with that one, Um, James. But Georgia, um, so this was obviously kept a secret from the public, but also some of his own ministers didn't even know about this, right? Like, what what are they saying? Exactly. So it kind of depends on which minister you ask about you know, will get you a different answer on whether they knew or not. So we've been told that Greg Hunt did agree to Scott Morrison's request in 2020 to share those health minister powers, but that Matthias Cormann, who was the finance minister, had no idea that Scott Morrison had appointed himself this new power until he read about it in the papers. And so this is, you know, you're looking at like the tightest tight of your inner circle, Mm. not knowing about what's going on. As for former resources minister Keith Pitt, he said uh, he did know that Scott Morrison had made himself this kind of joint minister certainly found it unusual. Uh, But as I said, I worked very closely with Scott uh, through a very difficult period through COVID for the whole country and all of the Australian people. But I'm just not going to throw him under a bus. I just won't. So he's, uh, that's Minister Keith Pitt there, or former Minister Keith Pitt there, saying that it was very unusual, um, this, this whole thing, which is um, quite an interesting way to put it. Georgia, um, how has the PM, though, Anthony Albanese, reacted to this? What, what's happening from here? So he, he's come out, as you would expect, he's been very critical, he's called it extraordinary, unprecedented. He's getting his department to look into it and one of the most senior lawyers in the government to really just kind of see if this is legal, is it constitutional? Uh, but he's also pointed out that even if it was legal, like we were talking about before, the question is why was it done in secret? And really that this doesn't do anything to help trust in politicians and in politics. This isn't some, you know, local footy club. This is the government of Australia where the people of Australia were kept in the dark as to what the ministerial arrangements were. It's completely unacceptable. That's uh, PM Anthony Albanese there reacting to this news of, of Scott Morrison's uh, portfolio allocation during the pandemic. You can you can kind of hear, Georgia, that Labor, Anthony Albanese and others are really kind of having a bit of fun with this one, aren't they? They're sort of, I don't know, I can I can detect some schadenfreude going on about, oh, about this whole thing. 100%. It's kind of, I think they're taking it as a, a little bit of a free kick if, if it all does stack up. And there has been plenty of jabs from the government, particularly about how maybe, you know, in their words, Uh, This is why Scott Morrison maybe wasn't doing a great job as a prime minister because he had all these other side hustles on the go. Um, And as well as that, there's that kind of criticism, but a lot of people within the government and others have also pointed out that it kind of also goes to Scott Morrison's character, right? Like he wanted to have all the power, so much so that even the people that he literally handpicked to be in these roles, he kind of added himself into so that he could override and he could override their decisions. Um, But I have to say, NDIS Minister Bill Shorten, he kind of took the cake this morning when he was asked about it. Goodness me, that was just, he was off on a trip. I don't know if it's some messianic complex or maybe he just thought he was the Australian version of Kanye, but this is actually a serious matter. And he's just, if he didn't have the confidence in his own cabinet, he should have told the people. The Australian version of Kanye. I mean, <laughs> those are two, Scott Morrison and Kanye West are not two people that I typically associate. put in the same sentence? No. Well, there's a first time for everything. Yes, there absolutely is. This story is just totally wild. Um, Georgia, just quickly, what has Scott Morrison said about this? This is all, we've been talking about him, but, but what has he said mm. about this whole situation? He has said 
extremely little. We've reached out to him, but he hasn't responded to the ABC. He did tell Sky News that he hasn't seen what Anthony Albanese has had to say about it all and that he, uh, and I quote, hasn't engaged with day-to-day politics since he stopped being Prime Minister. And that was kind of the sum total of what he said. Current Liberal leader Peter Dutton was asked about it and he said he had no idea that Scott Morrison had given himself these powers and he, I guess, is another of those Cabinet Ministers who had no idea what was going on. Mm, really interesting. Well, we'll see how this all plays out with the investigation that the Prime Minister has announced today. But, Georgia, thanks so much for getting us up to speed on that one. And that is Georgia Hitch there, uh, Hacks political reporter in Canberra. On the Triple J text line, someone says, it's not that big of a deal when you consider that ministers take their direction from the PM. It's not some sort of power grab. Uh, someone else, uh, Mortimer in Cranbourne North says, Scotty couldn't share the power, bit dodgy. And someone else says, so typical, damning a man for overworking. Albo is just jealous that he can't compete. There are far fewer Australians volunteering now than there were a few years ago. On Triple J. Have you got much spare time on your hands lately? Or do you feel busier than ever? Or do you just say that you are and you end up scrolling in front of the TV most nights? There's actually a massive shortage of volunteers in Australia. The rates of volunteering have gone down about 20% in five years. Some regional communities in particular have said it's meant that events have had to be cancelled because there just aren't enough people to help out. So why are so many of us not putting up our hands? And if you are keen to do volunteering, where do you even start? How do you do it? If you're a volunteer, I want to hear from you. What do you love about it? Why do you do it? Call me 1300 03536 or text in 0439 757555. Borough McHughes knows a lot about volunteering. He's been involved with the New South Wales RFS since he was in high school and he's also been a founding member of New South Wales Rural Fire Service's first Indigenous state mitigation crews in Brewarrina and Burke. Bara, thanks so much for chatting. Um, volunteering is a really big part of your life, isn't it? Yama, yeah. So, you know, volunteering is a, is a massive, important part, you know, I think in, in my life um, to, you know, look after mob, look after, you know, family, friends and, and, and my community, mm. um, you know, to work around the clock or, you know, even be there when, the, you know, they need, you know, the time or someone to come and, help out with, you know, fire or um, major emergencies or incidents. Yeah, right. And when it comes to volunteering, I feel like we often talk about or think about, you know, what it might take away from us, you know, our spare time, our energy. But does what, what does volunteering add to your life? Like, what does it add? Well, you know, you, you're doing things for you, your own community. So, you know, being, you know, recognising your community makes you, you know, stand a little bit more prouder and 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 taller um to serve for your community and your people Mm. and volunteering for you has also led to paid work right like can volunteering be a really smart move for your career as well yeah so you know it's it's a major you know major milestone um for example i've started volunteering about i think nearly nine years ten years ago uh when i was only in year um 10 or 11 in in high school and, and you know, it, it started from there. I left school um, to come into a three months, uh, sorry, six months contract with the New South Wales Rural Fire Service in the Far West team. Mm, awesome. And it, it, went on, it went on from there, you know, and and today, well, only a couple of months ago, I've, I had the opportunity to travel 
overseas to Canada to explore their Indigenous recruitments and Indigenous burn and implementations in their governments. Oh, that's so cool. So that, that that shows that volunteering can obviously like be, you know, an addition to your life or sort of be this thing that you do on the side. But then if you do stick at it, it can also become something that really helps direct your life and, and career in a way. Um, you're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack talking to Barra McHughes about volunteering because there's news that uh, volunteering rates have really gone down recently. Um, on the Triple J text line, someone says, if housing and cost of living weren't so expensive, people would have to spend every waking hour working and commuting. Um, yeah, Bara, the this story about you know volunteer rates going down recently, especially among young people. Uh, do you have a theory about why that might be? Have you seen it in your community of young people like not being as willing to put up their hand in in recent years? Yeah, so you know I've I'm I'm seeing you know there's not many young you know, volunteers around and, and I, I've tried to, you know, get around not only the Western New South Wales area, but, you know, around the New South Wales area. And I'm currently in Southern Queensland at the moment. I want to try to get out more in community, you know, liaise more. We, for organisations to get more volunteers, uh, the organisations, you know, got to show what's, you know, to offer. Right. And, and I, I think that's a, that's a massive way to, you know, bring people in to, you know, care for, you know, care for their community and, and you know, the environmental impacts and, and you know, most importantly, the, the cultural impacts for, you know, cult, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah, right. So you're saying it's kind of about selling the, um, selling volunteering to, to people as like a really good opportunity for their life and, and as something to do. Yeah, you know, because I, you know, I, I never thought I was, you know, coming in year 10, 11, I never thought I was, you know, I was going to be a fire brigade, you know, fiery. And look at um, you now, yeah. <laughs> yeah, volunteering with the, yeah. With the you know, for, uh, Rural Fire Service. Also, you know, volunteer with the state of New South Wales State Emergency Service and, and also retain uh, fire and rescue firefighter with Fire Rescue New South Wales. Absolutely amazing. And, um, and, and, and now working with the Queensland Fire and Emergency Service as a First Nations bushfire safety officer. It's, in, it's an incredible story and I think an inspiration for lots of people who are thinking about volunteering and the message is obviously just get out there and do it. Um, Barrow McHughes, thanks so much for chatting to me today. No worries, thank you. Hack on Triple J. That was Burrow McHughes there. He's a long-time RFS volunteer and the founding member of the New South Wales RFS's first Indigenous state mitigation crew. That's all we've got time for for today's episode. I'll be back with you again tomorrow.